about music. If I can't be a musician, it still has to be about music in some other way, you know. So that was my brief foray into trying to see if I could be like, you know, a human being aside from music. It didn't work out. Hello, I'm Mark McDonald. Welcome back to Meeting Musos. This week's episode is slightly different from the previous ones. The conversation focuses very specifically on the health and the well-being of musicians. My guest is vocal and performance coach Lucy Heyman. Lucy started her career out as a musician before making a move into the business side of the recording industry. She's now a PhD researcher and she specialises in supporting the mental, physical and vocal health of musicians. She's also the co-author of Sound Advice, which is a new book written with music journalist Rianne Jones. As well as that, she hosts the Elevate Music podcast, which aims to improve the health and well-being of musicians with weekly episodes. During our conversation, we discuss how her personal health issues resulted in a change of career. We talk about tackling performance anxiety and also about what's most important when it comes to creating a healthy practice routine. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. We've got lots to talk about today. Um, I'm really really excited to delve into your work and and to hear about your research and uh, everything that you do in the sort of health aspect of being a musician. Um, But I'd love to know where it all started for you in this industry. How did you come to work in the music industry initially? Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege to be on your podcast. Um, It all started when I was studying music at Bristol University. So um, we had a really good performance um, element to the course. Uh, So we were able to do about 60% of the course uh, on performance, which was quite a lot for like a non-conservatoire university. And my up to then my whole life had been music and clarinet playing. And that was just everything you know every summer I was doing like a national youth ensemble or you know my whole life from the age of about eight or nine was just all about music and I started to get really bad pains in my hands when I was practicing and you know embarrassing I'd practice for like six hours at a time without you know with with sort of small breaks but not really mindfully having a process in how to practice And as I approached my finals, this pain just got worse and worse. Uh, And and I ended up with like growths on my hands. And um, I went to see a physiotherapist and she said, look, I'm really sorry, but I don't think you are designed to play this instrument. I was like, what do you mean? Like, come on, everybody plays a clarinet. It's fine. And she said, no, no, you've got really extreme hypermobility. And now you're like really upping the amount that you're playing your body basically can't handle it. And, and I mean, this is just, just utterly heartbreaking at that point. I mean, I had always dreamt of going to do a master's at the Royal College and being a clarinetist. And that was, that was just the map, you know, that was, that was the route that it was going to be. And this was, it was just sort of, yeah, it was earth shattering. So I think it was that point that I first really started getting fascinated about injury and musicians' health. Um, and also identity 
how how we are musicians. It's not just a job, it's it's who we are. And what happens when that's taken away? Um, so I, I mean, I had a summer just trying to work out what to do with my life and uh and and I'd always sung I'd always played keyboards and saxophone and lots of other instruments but I think especially in the classical world there was really this feeling that like you're you know this real emphasis on your primary instrument and actually if you're not doing a primary instrument you know you're no good at it basically so I think it it didn't really occur to me that I could probably do carry on being a musician, but but maybe with the singing and the and the, and the keyboard and, and those other things, which seems crazy now. But do you know what I mean? There there can be yeah. this real, especially when you're studying, that they're, they're really uh, against sort of doing a joint study in instruments. And so after that, I um I I just I didn't know what to do. And someone uh, through a very circuitous route, someone said, look. It's so random. There's a job going at Prada in their press office. And I was like, do you know what? I mean, I'll try it. Like, I've never done anything like this. And I didn't last very long. And I just thought, this is just awful. <laughs> just, like, and it was just, it was so amazing having that moment where I was like, my whole life is about music. If I can't be a musician, it still has to be about music in some other way, you know. So that was my brief foray into trying to see if I could be like, you know, a human being aside from music. It didn't work out. And so um, I was really lucky. I managed to find um, a manager who basically gave me like an apprenticeship into the music business um, and taught me all about how record labels worked and how publishing worked. And I remember being really surprised about like the enormous industry that was music publishing. You know, I think as a younger musician, I'd heard a lot about record labels and getting signed, but I didn't really understand how publishing worked. And then through that, um, she had a band and they were looking for a singer and a keyboard player. And she said, well, come on, you're a singer. I've heard you sing. And I was like, well, I, I'm not really sure. I'm like, good enough. I, you know, and she said, no, look at you. Know, so I, I auditioned for the band. They were like, you're great. Like, this is absolutely, you know, fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, we had, we had a lot of fun with that band and I still managed to work part time for the manager and you know we did some great gigs great gigs we I think we recorded live from Air Studios for a Channel 4 show and you know all the kind of usual usual gigs around London and I had this period where um it was really intense and it was quite bizarre but I carried on the classical route as well so I was singing in the London Symphony Chorus um which is the LSO's chorus and um yeah. you know some amazing opportunities through that singing in the proms with Colin Davis, traveling around Europe, um, all kinds of great things. And then I was going to do a warehouse gig or something. And then at that time, I also started working with a Bristol-based producer, um, doing a much more electronica sort of thing with my own solo work. Um, so that that period was wonderfully wonderful musically. And I remember we were doing a Prokofiev piece in the LSO. And I remember this, like the opening chords and, and thinking, my God, that's just the most amazing progression. Then coming back and sort of trying to write a song sort of loosely based around those chords. And, and I really felt that that sort of the exposure to the classical kind of canon and, and, and then actually having kind of experimental ways of processing that type of music and bringing it into my own compositions or, you know, writing songs and things. Um, I found it incredibly rich. And I think that is something that I, I just don't think we see enough of, that musicians really, really kind of like bringing all the different influences into one camp, or at least, you know, the, the ghettoization of musicians, for example, in music colleges like 
the Royal College of Music, you know, it's exclusively classical. And then mm. you have somewhere like, for example, the ICMP, you know, it's exclusively pop. And I just think that that sort of cross-culturalization of musical genres would be so beneficial to musicians. Um, obviously, the RNCM is now doing it. Um, but but I, I just wonder, have you got any thoughts on that, that idea of, of musicians ghettoizing themselves or benefiting from crossing over? Absolutely. I think it's really important. Um, I, w- I was lucky the degree I did was a real melting pot of, of musicians. I, I went there as a classical pianist, but a lot of the other people on the course were jazz musicians or folk musicians. Some of them were pop singers. Um, some people were there for the music technology stuff. It was a real, you know, a real melting pot. And the idea was that it sets you up for a career in the industry with all of these different strands within it. But I guess what's interesting about what you're saying is actually, actually creatively as well. It also inspires you about being able to take influences from different parts of the musical world. Mm. I mean, I was studying 20 years ago, so I think music degrees generally have really improved. Um, We weren't really able to study anything about the industry and it was all very, very, dry in terms of the other elements apart from performance um a lot of things like remember like writing a whole essay on mozart's concerto first movement form or something i mean you know it was just so dry (laughs) not not (laughs) something i'm sure some people find that fascinating but i yeah it wasn't it wasn't of any interest to me um but um yeah so so from there um I was I was probably working a bit hard, but um, unfortunately I got really, really ill after that. Um, I just started to feel really unwell on a regular basis and just increasing amounts of pain throughout my whole body and more migraines. Um, and eventually I went back to my parents' house uh, just to, you know, for a week's holiday. And I just, it was like I fell off a cliff. It was just... Um, yeah, it, it was, it was really, it was a really difficult time. Um, I was diagnosed with ME and it took, it took about two years probably to recover. And then I now know that I had a genetic susceptibility to various issues. Um, but in those days I, I didn't know. and It just felt like I kept, I just kept getting ill and it was, it almost became a bit of a joke, but, um, but, but again, it was, that experience was really hard at the time, but I learned so much about how to look after your health and well-being. And I kind of suddenly thought, like, we don't get taught this stuff. You know, we we go to music college or we go to university and we're taught how to play, but we're not taught how to look after our bodies. And I think especially for self-employed musicians, you know, our our jobs are incredibly intense and we need to know ways to look after ourselves. And, and also, you know, being self-employed, what happens when you do get injured or you do get ill? You can't work. Um, and I was incredibly lucky. I just had secured a sink through the Bristol-based work I was doing. I, I just, I mean, the timing was unbelievable. So I received a check at the beginning of when I had ME, which which pretty much kind of tided me over that period. Um, and if it wasn't for that, I mean, you know, I just, honestly, it was just, I was so immensely grateful. But then at the other end of that, it was just like, Oh goodness, what do I do now? Because although I had kind of recovered from Emmy, um, as a singer, I I just found that I, I didn't have the consistency in my voice mm-hmm. in the same way anymore. I mean, I probably had 75% consistency, which as you know is not good enough for a professional gig. You know, you can't you can't do a gig and say, sorry guys, today's a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> so it was um 
Yeah. So I, I sort of moved away from the performance side of things and I always carried on doing sort of part-time gigs and the LSC stuff when I could. Um, and I spent a lot more time on the industry side of things. So I was a tour manager for a while um, and I then worked in publishing, doing syncs myself. Um, and, and and it got to a point where, I, I mean, it's it's almost like a comedy of errors. I then was diagnosed with a, a large tumour that had to be um, surgically removed. And at that point, I I just thought, this, do you know what? I've just, I need to just take a break from all of this and I need to just go and reset and um and actually I was getting incredibly tired of of the actual machine that is the music business and the idea I I just I didn't feel the love for music in the same way anymore um so I spent a long time thinking about what the best approach would be and you know at this point I had my own sync business I'd just been in LA you know I just it was just you know I it was one of those things when people say, you've got to be careful, like you've got to be very clear about the goal that you want, because there's nothing worse than achieving the goal and realising it wasn't really what you wanted in the first place. So mm. I was, you know, in LA, living it up with all these music supervisors, having the most amazing time. And and I just thought, I hate this. I absolutely hate this. This is so disconnected from the music. And I want to be yeah. back playing and experiencing that music rather than effectively selling it, you know, because mm. um, that's really what what it kind of came down to, trying to sell great tracks to people who weren't necessarily musical. And, and, you know, a lot of the time I just felt like saying, just listen to it. Like, I can't tell you what's going to do. It's just the most incredible <laughs> track, you know. It's not, I don't know, sometimes I find sort of, yeah, selling music or, or telling people how good a track is, is just a strange thing. Like, just just listen to it. Um, so um, I was recovering from the surgery and it was a lot more complicated than we had expected when I went in. And so I had a very, I had about six months out recovering and I just thought do you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna go into teaching I'm gonna be I'm gonna go back to I absolutely loved music as a child I want to go and actually remember like connect with that thing that is magic about music um so I sent some CVs to some local schools and I just thought, you know, this is not, I, 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 don't, I don't have any qualifications in teaching, but I'd sent CVs out as a clarinet teacher. And I think they may have, might've had one or two clarinet pupils that I, I started to teach because that's what I felt really qualified in. And they said, um, we've, you know, we've hit capacity with our singing teacher and we know that you sing. Would you, would you be our singing teacher? I said, but I, I don't feel qualified enough. And they said, well, look, you know, start with some of the younger children and just see how it go, how you go. Um, so I started doing that and I loved it. And I thought, right, well, I, I quite quickly need to skill up. So I went on lots of courses, went to London, did a five day thing at the Royal Academy and all kinds of things. And I was on this kind of like really intense CPD kind of course in order to work out how I could teach effectively but also making sure that all my because I had had lessons for years and years but I you know the, the last sort of six years I probably hadn't had lessons regularly and I needed to make sure that I was up to date but anyway it was just this really really wonderful time I mean there's probably about five years where I I just taught singing in schools and you know obviously you've got students that are, can be a bit difficult but on the whole it was just the most wonderful thing and you know children would come in and say oh I've been looking forward to this all week or you know oh my goodness can we sing that Disney song or like can I sing Adele <laughs> you know and just experiencing again that the magic of the connection of of music and watching students grow and 
you know, parents coming up to me after I'd worked with a student for three years or so and said, you know, it's not just about the singing. She has grown so much as a singer, but it's about her confidence overall, you know. We've seen her you know, doing plays and whatever, and she would never have done that if it wasn't for actually, you know, you teaching her about the power of her voice and the power about standing up and performing in public. And I think it was it it's such a it's such an important lesson again, isn't it, about how vital music education is. It's not just about teaching people to play instruments or to sing. It's it's such a wider skill set that you benefit from for the rest of your life. Yeah, in all areas of your life as well. It, as you said earlier, it, it really can define who you are as a person to be a musician. It's more, it's definitely more than just a job and just a, a skill set. It, it's really, you know, everything from how you socialise and the, the people you choose to spend time with and mm. to affecting things like your confidence and being able to get up and perform. So where where does your work take you now because since then from teaching singing in schools you're now a a vocal coach but you're also really involved in the wider well-being and health of musicians yeah so from there i eventually got a job at birmingham city university um as a vocal coach on their popular music performance course which was you know great experience and then also old manager friends started you know touching base and saying what are you doing now and I was like oh I'm a vocal coach and they're like, oh come and work with our artist and you know and it's it's been a really long process it's been it's been 10 years um that I've been sort of doing this um it's probably a bit longer actually no probably 11 or 12 years um but when I was at BCU we had these astonishing singers who would come in and and their technique was fantastic but they really fell apart in live performance. Like they were experiencing really bad performance anxiety. Um, and I just didn't feel equipped to help them with that. And there was a lot of performance psychology issues like perfectionism, um, just confidence issues generally. And I just thought, you know, being a vocal coach is, is so much more than just teaching people to sing and, and you know, communicate the emotion. There's, there is this whole world of the psychology of performing that you really need to be able to know about to do a really good job. So there was recently uh, an MSc course at the Royal College of Music on something called performance science. And it was looking at all the different health and well-being issues that musicians face and really focusing on performance psychology as well. And I just thought this would be absolutely ideal. Like this is, you know, this is what I need to do. So I enrolled in that course and through that process, like quite early on, um, in one of the first lectures, you know, they were saying um, 74% of musicians experience pain when they play or something like that. And we were encouraged to sort of pick apart the the research paper and say, well, where are the limitations? And I said, well, when you say musicians, um, obviously, like, what demographic of musicians are you talking about? Are they classical or are they pop? They said, oh, they're classical. I said, well, where's where's the research for pop? And they were like, well, it doesn't really exist. Like, there isn't really much. And I was just like, hang on a second, what? And there was this whole world of of research for classical musicians about how to support their health and well-being. And there were all these resources and things and there was nothing for pop. And I think mm. that year, the UK Music, uh, the Music by Numbers guide they did, I think 94% of the albums sold in the UK were non-classical. Yeah. And it was like, well, what? 
what, what, who's supporting the health of all these musicians who aren't classical? Yeah. Like, it was just a, a total no-brainer for me. And, like, I just thought that I was going to do this course and come out with really good knowledge about how to help someone with performance anxiety and I'd go back to the work I'd done. And um, and I said, well, you know, there needs to be lots of research done on this. And they said, well, why don't you do it? I thought, oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't want to do research. <laughs> like, you've got to be joking. And, uh, and anyway, and so I, I started off doing some research as part of that MSc and it was it was utterly fascinating and it was it was a really interesting process and and I think because I was doing it part-time I was able to also vocal coach as well and keep my hand in actually doing the musical side of things as well so it wasn't like before when I just completely disappeared into into sort of computer work um and it was also really interesting because those experiences of working with artists and, I, and this is something that's really important to me is that the research has to be really rooted in a real world that you know that expression like rooted in real world but like um it's got to be actually um based on experiences that happen in the real world because I think if you get it, you know it can be easy to kind of just go down the academic path and actually not see things in front of you that are happening and say well actually what about this and what about this and and so I do a lot of work with BAPAM as well as a performance coach helping their they're artists who go through various funding programs from help musicians. So I do, it's essentially wellbeing coaching um, based around performance and health. And, um, and that just constantly informs all the work I do because all the time these artists are bringing the very, you know, the things that they're m- most struggling with at the moment. And obviously with COVID, that's completely changed again. I mean, the experiences of of struggle and, and, and difficulty that artists and musicians are under at the moment is is quite different to maybe eighteen months ago. Um, so, so anyway, yeah. So, the, so I finished that MSc. I did that research, and um, I now I'm now doing a part time PhD, and I really integrate all of the all of the experiences I have in, into my work. So the research informs the vocal and performance coaching, the coaching informs the research and all that kind of thing. So that's kind of how I got here in a very long-winded way. So in that research then, when you're looking specifically at people in the pop side of the industry, do you find there are massively different issues between classical players and pop players or even you know, between singers and drummers or people who tour for a living versus people who maybe do sessions for a living? Are the health issues widely different or or are there sort of common things across all people who do this for a living? I think the the issues are similar. So obviously in musicians, we've got a lot of musculoskeletal issues and a lot of pain when playing um, that affects both cohorts although it's one of the things that I've really noticed with pop musicians is a lot of them are self-trained so especially some of the professionals who might be a bit older because we've obviously had a huge kind of growth in popular music education in the last 10 years um, but maybe 20 years ago someone might have actually taught themselves so that um kind of teaching yourself how to play the guitar and, and, you know, becoming incredibly good, you might have learned bad habits in terms of posture or your style. And over time, they can obviously cause um, injuries. So that's, that is slightly different in, in um, 
between pop and classical. And then we've obviously got hearing issues. So um, again, they're very slightly different. So, you know, if you're playing in the Royal Opera House's pit, it's going to be incredibly loud. Um, If you're a drummer with a big stack speaker by your ear, it's going to be a different type of sound. And so, so the, the experiences are very similar, but the problems are the, are the same, but the experiences are slightly nuanced in how people experience them. So obviously both musicians experience performance anxiety, um, but again, it's quite different in how that manifests itself. So uh, for some people in pop, for example, it can be you know that, that performance anxiety really presents itself in promo. Um, so it actually might not necessarily be the playing of the instrument in front of a stadium, but it might actually be going and, um, I was about to say Parkinson. I think that's, is Parkinson even still on? I don't think it is. Goodness I don't think me. he's been on for about 20 years. <laughs> I don't even know where that came from. I think someone posted a thing. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Graham Norton. There we go. Yeah, yeah Graham Norton. So um, it can be, you know, like doing a very small, intimate studio gig or something in a setting like that. So we have this kind of body of issues that affect musicians, but then the the context and the environments that the musicians work in are obviously incredibly different. Um, so, um, yeah, like from your experience, like what what are some of the different environments, like how, as a musician, like, you know, the, the diverse environments that you've worked in, how do they impact you? Um, so most of my work in the last 10 years has been in musical theatre um, and I've come across both personally and with some of the other musicians I've worked with things like performance anxiety to an extent, but related to the repetition of doing the same thing every night and what that can do to you mentally, you know, getting hung up on one bar of music and it's sort of, you know, every night you know that it's coming up, but things like that. And, and also physically, if you're on a, a touring job like that, when you're moving from venue to venue every week and maybe you're, uh, you've got a slightly different setup, maybe you're sitting on a, a different stool or chair or and and that just causing problems, back pain, shoulder pain, um, mm. all of that sort of thing. I've seen quite a bit of that as well. Yeah, the touring experience, there's been a bit of research on that and it's, you know, there's there are so many aspects to touring as well, aren't there, in terms of, things like your support system's taken away. So, yeah. you know, if you're going to be under more stress and actually the things that normally support you in your day-to-day life, like friends and family and routines and all those kind of things are, are taken away. And um, obviously eating habits are really bad when you're on tour. <laughs> like it's so hard to get really good food unless you're doing a massive stadium gig and you've got catering. But, um, you know, things like sleep is disrupted. Um, it can be so hard to get exercise. And all these things are quite small on their own. But if you put them all together... Um, you know, you can you can see really people having some real challenges quite quickly. Um, and another thing that we hear a lot of is um, that process of actually how stressful coming off tour is. And you've been in this bubble with all these people. And I mean, I'm sure you can talk about this, but but there's almost like how, when you come off, off tour, like what's your normal life? Like what's your normal routine? And where are all these people that I've been spending all this time with? Yeah, it's a it's a strange moment that, um, especially when if you're working on a longer contract, most of the contracts I've had have been at least 12 months, some of them 18 months. Um, and 
I've worked on the same show, contract after contract for a number of years, but the people change every year. Not everyone stays. And it's bizarre because you go from people feeling very much like a family to, you know, seeing them every day, all day, every day, socialising with them, travelling with them, quite often living in the same hotel as them, working with them. And then the next day they're gone. And as you've had a great time together, but there are a lot of those people who you, you don't see again or and you don't stay in touch with. And a whole new load of people come in and within a week or two, it feels the same same with them. So it's a really bizarre social environment mm. as well. It's lovely and it's great to be part of and it's a real community, but it's very unusual and it is quite strange to adapt to it when you then move on. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about the difference between musicians who who train and who who are taught their instrument versus those who are maybe self-taught. Do you think there's enough done within music education now uh, in order to prepare young people to have a healthy career in the industry? It's a really good question. And it's kind of become a bit of a personal mission <laughs> to to try and improve the to try and improve the resources and the information that goes out to musicians generally um obviously when i say it's a personal mission obviously i'm going to make a very tiny tiny contribution to that <laughs> but this is it's it's something that i feel incredibly passionate passionate about so one of the things um when we look at the research um, that has been done, especially with classical musicians, you know, there there is so much support out there. And places like the RCM now will do these really extensive health and wellbeing programmes, which will cover everything from performance anxiety to, as we said, musculoskeletal health. And they will kit people out with hearing, um, you know, uh, personalized earplugs and 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 they also look at things like life skills like how you manage stress and how you know all, all kinds of things how you manage your time and why why is that only happening to students who are studying at a conservatoire like i think all musicians should have access to this like throughout their whole life this information there's so much information in journals about how to support not just not just health and well-being, but actually how to enhance performance as well. That just doesn't get out there. And I, my mind was kind of blown when I was doing this course. And I was like, why don't people know this stuff? And I think partly it's because the, the field of music performance research, um, sorry, music sorry, <laughs> music performance science research is relatively relatively young. So you know, some of the best research has only been done in the last 15 years. So it obviously takes time for it to get out of the sort of academic home and into into the public. But there are two things that I think are really important. One is um, when musicians are studying, so whether they're at a pop music college or whatever they're doing, actually having an understanding of how to use their bodies properly, how to practice effectively. Um so actually, I'm going to come back to practice because I really want to speak about that. But um, good because that's on my list to ask you about. Oh, great! <laughs> <laughs> so, so all these kind of things of how to, you know, how to become a healthy musician at university, and then and then we also need to equip professional musicians who haven't had that training at university or, or music college, like on the job. Like, how can they look after themselves and and um, and actually 
prevent issues happening or self-manage small issues or know or know the best place to go if they get issues. So one thing that you know, was kind of really heartbreaking for me is to know that actually I went to the wrong physio when I had problems with my hands playing the clarinet. Like it was fine. Like it could have been managed um, with the right music specific physio. And I think that's what we've got now, which we didn't have 20 years ago, is there are so many professionals who are so skilled at the specific problems that musicians face. Um, And as a musician, it's really important to be able to get into that sort of system as quickly as possible. So if you have a musculoskeletal injury as a musician, you need to go to somewhere like BAPAM, where they're going to have music specific physios who understand that you have to carry on playing and, and that actually this is your livelihood and they are fantastic and they will find ways to support you and and get the help you need. And the same with things like vocal rehabilitation coaches. You know, if you're a singer and you're a professional voice user, if you go to your GP and just say that you're having problems with your voice, you won't get the same treatment as if you go somewhere like BAPAM or a professional voice user clinic and speak to people who understand the issues that singers face and that, you know, how you can be supported to carry on working. Um, So we've had some amazing developments and it's about pulling all these things together. So um, I sit on a couple of steering groups, uh, one for help musicians, uh, one for attitude is everything. Um, I created a podcast with help musicians. Um, so I, you know, I was sitting in a lecture once and I just thought, how, how do we get this information to musicians? And it was kind of really important to me that there wasn't a paywall as well, you know, so that, that anybody could listen to the best advice from the best vocal rehabilitation coach, you know, and actually they should be able to access that. So I, you know, proposed this to help musicians and they were incredibly kind and, and, and funded it. Um, and it's, it's been, it's been incredible. And we've, we've had so many people listening all around the world and, um, it's, it's, it was a real personal dream come true for, for that to happen. And then the next step was, I really wanted to write a book and, um, I I kind of had a quite a clear idea of what I wanted to write in this book. Um, but I'm not a professional writer in an engaging way. You know, I've written research papers, but I, I don't know how to write a book. And I very serendipitously met the music journalist, Rianne Jones, and she was just sort of saying, you know, what are you working on? I was like, well, you know, just about to do this podcast and I want to write a book on health and wellbeing. She's like, oh my goodness, I want to write exactly the same book. And we had this moment where we were like, you know, because we didn't know each other that well. We'd met a couple of times before, you know, you sort of think, do, do, do we do it together? together? We were like, uh, and, and I think, I think she said, look, well, why don't we write it together? I said, okay, I think we need to sleep on it. Like, you know, let's go away and just make sure. And she's like, no, 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 I know, I know, I want to do this. And I was like, well, let me, let me just give you 24 hours so you can change your mind if you wake up tomorrow morning. And then, you know, next day we were like, no, it's, it's a great idea. Um, so we went out to the labels and well, actually in Live Nation, we're really kind. We, we basically did this pitch and said, this is the book we want to write. This is what we want to include in it. And uh, you know, please, please give us some money to write it. Because we knew it was going to be such an enormous task. Like it wasn't going to be something you could knock out in a couple of months. Like the, the referencing and the research that was going to go into it was going to be huge. Uh, and so bless Live Nation. Uh, John Reed was the first guy and he said, yeah. I'll give you some money. And it was just like, oh, wow. And then from Fantastic. there, you know, we went round to Sony and Warner and Universal and, and did the same thing. And, and, and bless them, they were all just like, yeah, we'll, we'll support this. Um, then we've got PRS, PPL, BPI, you know, all, all these amazing organisations. So I just, I am 
truly humble to this day that they <laughs> that they believed in us. We had nothing. We didn't even give them a sample chapter. It was just I just told them about the, the issues musicians face, why why it was so important that they're better supported. Anyway, so two years later, we have a book, and it's coming out on Friday. Yeah, and uh, congratulations because uh, you very kindly sent me a copy of it to to read, and I, and I did, and it's it really is fantastic. It's such a practical read for for musicians um it just puts everything you know in really simple terms which you can easily put into practice in in your life and it covers so much it covers everything from the business side of things like doing your accounts and using social media well to the things that you're specializing in like looking after your mental and physical health and dealing with performance anxiety and and all of these things it's it's such a, a useful read is it aimed at one specific part of the industry or do you think it's something that um you know musicians in all settings can can benefit from well i think we kind of wrote it with the idea that it may not be something you necessarily read cover to cover and you may take bits from each section so for example you know there's so many diy artists independent diy artists who really need a lot of information about the business side of things and how to apply for funding and all that so it was really important that we put that in but then at the same time you know um there's information in there that i've worked with professional singers who you know there was you know really don't necessarily have that good an understanding of vocal health maybe or performance anxiety and so I think it, it it can be applicable to musicians of any career stage um but we did want to make sure that there was enough information for like new you know new musicians who are pr- transitioning from amateur to professional because that is an incredibly stressful time as well um I'd love to talk to you specifically about performance anxiety and, and mental health issues um related to performing mm. Do you think, or do you, or do you know, is it more common now than before, or is it just that people are actually recognising it and talking about it these days? I don't know of any specific research which is looking at the prevalence of issues, say, twenty years ago to now. I remember when I first got into the industry, there was just there was no conversation about mental health. I don't know if you found that experience, but I mean, I just. I didn't tell any of my bandmates that I had performance anxiety. I just suck it up and, you know, just try and cope with it. And and I didn't tell anybody. I I, I probably felt quite ashamed of it. Um, and I just think it's so amazing that we are all talking about this now. Um, that, you know, there are other issues at, at play, like I think there are, I think the industry has halved in terms of the amount of money that it's worth compared to 20 years ago. And I, th- I think I'm right in saying that the amount of artists has doubled. Um, right. So there's a lot less money available for people to be pro- professional musicians. And I, I think the financial insecurity of the job um, causes a huge amount of stress. And even things, obviously, there's the inquiry going into streaming at the moment and, and obviously musicians can't tour and and COVID will have made this a lot, lot worse. But, um, you know, I, I think financial issues are a huge, huge element in why so many musicians are struggling. Um, mm. With regards to performance anxiety, as I said, I, I don't know of any research that says it's more prevalent. And I, I think, as you say, I think we probably talk about it more. Yeah, I, I find especially with younger musicians um 
are definitely talking about it more and definitely more aware of it. I, I can't think of any more experienced uh, older guys who I've worked with who who openly talk about it um, quite so much. But you hear the phrase imposter syndrome thrown around more often these days. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that's just people these days coming through, whether it's in their, their music education or or you know, just what they're exposed to in their day-to-day life, that these issues are real and that that they do affect all of us. And I don't think we, I don't think we really had the words for it 20 years ago. Yeah. I wouldn't have called what I had performance anxiety. Um, I remember doing a, a record company showcase and I just had the most horrific blank. I was almost like out of my body. I was so nervous and I, I couldn't remember the chords and I couldn't remember the words or anything. You know, I, I didn't know what that was. I didn't have a way to describe it. It was, and now I know, okay, yeah, that's, that's classic performance anxiety. But then it was just, I don't know, we just didn't talk about it. Yeah. And now that we do talk about it and people are much more aware of it, is it something that you think can be prepared for in a sort of preventative way or is it something that's best tackled when it arises? Ah, I see what you mean. Um, I spoke to the uh, Australian researcher Diana Kenny, who is like a rock star on this topic. I mean, she's written <laughs> hundreds of papers and literally written the book on the topic. Um, so she's, you know, one of the leading thinkers on it. And um, she said that there was always an issue. There's always an an, a, um, an event in a young musician's life where maybe they uh, were doing a live performance and maybe the piece was too hard or may- for whatever reason they were pushed a little bit too hard and they made a mistake in performance and almost you know, they felt that idea, you know, that they felt that shame quite strongly. And she believes that it's those early experiences that then play into performance anxiety that we experience as, as, as adults. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently um, as someone who has instrument specific performance anxiety. And I was thinking I never had a shame experience on the clarinet, but I did on the keyboard, on the piano. And and I, 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 I mean, I, I do play piano in public and, and keyboard in public, but I, I, it cripples me. And I've and, and so she her advice is that actually we mustn't push children too hard. We mustn't give them repertoire that is too difficult for them and make them play in a public space too quickly you know if they're going to do exams they need to be really really well prepared um and so this isn't a theory that i've heard very widely and as i say i I only spoke to her a few weeks ago and and so this is this is a relatively new theory to me but it really makes sense to me Is, is that something you ever experienced um i don't know that i experienced it but it makes total sense because i i did all of my graded piano exams when i was a kid and i had luckily had good experiences I was always well prepared and um always did well in them and I've always you know uh given credit to that as being the reason that that I didn't struggle with performance um when I was younger um certainly as a as a teenager and when I went to university and and then when I graduated I I was never really phased with performance at all but I found as I got older it's become a little bit more difficult and I am aware of nerves and a little bit of anxiety around certain things and I wonder if that maybe has come from a bad experience at some point that I didn't really clock at the time. 
but it does see, that does make a lot of sense to me. But in terms of the second part of your question, there's a lot now that you can do to manage performance anxiety. Um, which when I when I found it out, I mean it was it was mind blowing. I'm I get performance anxiety for all kinds of things and um, you know, speaking in public and you name it. And so when I was doing this MSC, I was like learning all these different approaches to managing it. And I thought, well, I'm going to put this into practice. Let's try, you know. And um, yeah, it really was quite phenomenal. Um, And yeah, I, I, you know, I, I even at one point went on TV to discuss this topic. And I mean, that would have complete, I I couldn't have done it before. Um, Mm. So yeah, this is a very, very shy young child who would be terrified of things. Um, It's been really fascinating to know that you can learn to overcome it, but whilst remembering that it's also a very, very complex um, experience and some of, you know, different, different people experience performance anxiety in different ways, different treatments are going to work for different people. And for some people, you know, it needs to be a very, you know, a very detailed therapeutic approach working yeah. one-to-one with a with a counsellor or, or a trained therapist. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you've had any or if you've come across people with really extreme cases of it and how, how that's manifested itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, people vomiting before performance and um, the sort of blackout, the memory blackouts and things. Um, and I've, I've definitely had that myself as well. Um and it's, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I remember I knew a musician who would vomit before every performance and he was like, yeah, it's just the way it is. I just have to get used to it. You know, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? As musicians, the things that we just sort of almost go, oh yeah, that's just the way it is. Well, well, you know, and there are ways to deal with it now. And, and, and there are organisations that, that can really help and really understand. Um, and also things like performance anxiety, you know, there's, there are vocal health issues that come about from unmanaged performance anxiety. Um, you know, muscle, muscle tension dysphonia, you know, it comes when we are so tense all the time and we don't know how to actually physically relax. So it's, it's really important that we manage it. Um, you know, it's not just a case of, of gritting your teeth and getting on with it. You, you know, in order to prevent any other issues longer term happening. Um, and just so for anyone who is listening and, and does experience it, you know, go get in touch with BAPAM. Um, they've got brilliant resource sheets on their website and they also have trained psychotherapists who work with musicians all the time who are struggling with performance anxiety and they're just absolutely fantastic. So I just really recommend that people just try and seek the correct help. Um, obviously, every case of it is different as well and will would need to be dealt with differently. But if there's someone listening to this who's maybe thinking, I feel a little bit of that, are there any tips that you can implement, you know, quite easily into your routine to to really help you out with it in, in milder cases? Yeah, there's um there are a few that I like. And one is um one is really quite simple that that's been effective in the research about reframing anxiety as something positive and as a, as excitement. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're like excited about an event, but you're also nervous and you can't quite work out like what percentage is excitement and what percentage is nerves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, they say that, you know, excitement and nerves are, are very close together on that scale. So um, they found that you can, if, you know, if you're able to, the, the very simple task of reframing anxiety as excitement um, can be quite 
quite effective. And also, um, it's a slightly older model now that um, it's uh, the Yerkes-Dodson inverted U-curve. So essentially, imagine a big hill um, and you've got performance quality at one side and the the level of anxiety or, or excitement that you feel across the bottom. So I don't know, Mark, if you've ever had this experience of like practicing and your performance is quite flat you're like just at home and you're like, mm, okay, that's all right. And then you go and do a show and you play better than you've ever played at home. Yeah. Yeah. So what that is, is that you actually need that level of anxiety, like what they call arousal to do your best performance. Um, and so the, the, the trick is not to get rid of the anxiety, but it's to manage it to the point where you need it. So it's really, really effective and it's actually going to boost your performance. Um, and obviously, you know, if we imagine that hill on that graph, it's going to go down. So if you've got too much of that, it's going to start like impairing your performance and you don't want to get it to that point. Um, and there are little things you can do to try and manage the different levels of, of performance anxiety so that you can get it to your, to your best. But, um, but, but I think it's a really, it's a really interesting one in the context of the conversation about reducing performance anxiety, because especially in the classical world, um, some people turn to beta blockers. And, you know, if if you, and, and for anyone who doesn't know a beta blocker, it basically inhibits the production of adrenaline, you know, and in, in extreme cases, it can be really useful. Um, but research has suggested that audiences actually comment on flat performances when people are, are using beta blockers. Oh, wow. And it goes back to this idea that we actually need that level of arousal to really make our performance come alive. It's really interesting and it's very familiar, actually, the idea that the, a certain level of anxiety can actually result in your optimal performance level. But it feels mm. like a very fine line between that and it going completely <laughs> the wrong way yeah. um yes yeah, so is, is that just a personal thing for each musician to to work out how to manage and find you know the right amount for them to, and being able to to control it so that you do end up with that ideal performance well there's quite a few different theories in the performance psychology world um but one of them looks at this kind of model that there are three main sources of stress for a musician um that can be managed one is looking at the task mastery, which they call that. So it's like how good you are at the instrument, how good you are at the piece you're playing, you know, how confident you are with that with that performance. And I like to think of these as like sliders on a mixing desk. So let's say hypothetically that you are winging it and you've just been given a piece and you haven't had enough time to practice, you know, and you're just thinking, God, there's that really difficult bar and I know it's coming up, you know, that is going to put your anxiety level up. So let's put the slider one right up. The second one is the environment. So Mark, if you're like, performing in your in a musical theatre pit and you know that you've done this however many years you're really comfortable there like you know it's probably not going to induce huge amounts of anxiety but um I don't know you know not necessarily for you but for somebody if if you were to suddenly go out and play one of your pieces one of your songs or whatever at the um O2 arena on your own with no band behind you you know that's going to be incredibly anxiety inducing um and it can also be environment can also be things like the audiences so i hear a lot of people saying you know who are doing support tours and they say you know i did this support for x artist and these are not my fans you know this guy is like hardcore rock and i'm singing i'm a woman singing kind of in introverted singer songwriter stuff you know yeah. that 
so so it's really interesting to think about your environment and how that's going to play into your anxiety levels and how you're going to um, interpret them. And the third one is trait anxiety. So, you know, are you an anxious person generally? Like, do you get social anxiety? And I think we all kind of know if we are, we aren't. Um, and so if you have a natural tendency to be slightly anxious, you know, that slide is going to be up as well. Um, are you still with me on the slider model? Is it still making sense? Yeah. Okay. Makes total sense. <laughs> so, the, so, so for example, in that situation that, you know, you're playing, you were just chucked a piece of music and you're going to be playing in the O2 arena tonight and you've never done it before and you're quite anxious generally. Like you can probably have a pretty good estimation that you are going to be seriously nervous for that yeah. gig. Um, and that's when it's quite good to know how performance anxiety affects you. So for me, I would probably just completely blank out with lyrics and I'd probably forget my you know the music or whatever so I probably would have a backup I don't know piece of music backup somewhere or have it on the stand I wouldn't necessarily need it or whatever um depending obviously on the kind of music you play um and I, I don't know lyric prompts or or whatever um but, but how could you put things in place to support you with that really high anxiety level so you know it could be that you need breathing techniques before you need to really work hard at actually getting your state into a really calm place before but if we look at another option of that model is you know how can you reduce those sliders in advance could you, for example, with the task mastery, you know, what, what can you do to practice and prepare a piece or whatever, you know, in, in more detail? How can you get that slider down? That's the question. And the second one with the environment is like, you know, can you, for example, OK, so you're playing in the O2 arena. It, can you actually get there early, walk around, familiarise yourself with the venue. If you can't do that, can you look at people performing there online and do some like visualisation or mental rehearsal of you actually performing on that stage? Um, And there's been some amazing research about mental rehearsal and it's, you know, how effective it is. Um, So it's a really, really good tool. If you, you know, you can use it for practice, you can use it for performing and and, and imagining yourself in certain spaces. Um, and the third one is if you have trait anxiety, you know, going to see having a, a, a therapist that can help you work through that. Um, so, yeah, it's that's only one model. There are so many different approaches and obviously it can be quite overwhelming to <laughs> present all of them or even just presenting that one. But I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes complete sense. It's really fascinating. Um, something that I always found helped me was a, a little tool that I got from a book called The Inner Game of Music, uh, yeah. um, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and it sort of ties into the practice of mindfulness, really. And, it, you know, rather than when you're performing, trying to get it right and trying to perform and, uh, you know, trying not to be nervous, just observing and almost being like a member of the audience and listening to what you're doing, trusting what the preparation that you've done yeah. and allowing it to happen and actually just listening to it. And I, that that's a little trick that's always stuck with me and, and personally has always really worked better than anything I've tried before mm. but I, I love the idea of um the visual, visualization and reducing those sliders yeah it's really interesting there's one final one that I really like and it's about being clear about what your intention is for the performance so I think when we're very anxious um our attentional focus gets really small and we can be quite self 
oriented. So you sort of start thinking, what do I look like? Am I going to come, come across well? Are people going to like me? You know, whereas if you kind of have a clear intention for your performance, let's say you're a singer songwriter, you know, and you say, well, why do you write these songs? And, and, and often you get people saying things like, I want to connect with the audience. You know, I want to make have a, people have a great time or I want to, you know, make them feel really, you know, I want them to connect with the emotion of, of my song or whatever. When they connect with those bigger intentions, the performance becomes something much bigger than themselves. And it's like, well, can you go on stage and try and make sure that everybody has a great time? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. You know, and that it's almost like coming from a place of giving rather than a place of being judged. Yeah. And it's such a different, it's such a tiny shift in mindset, but it can make a huge difference. Yeah. We said that we would talk about practice, so I definitely want to get that in uh, (laughs) while I've got you here. Can you talk us through your experience, your research, your your thoughts on practicing in a healthy way? Yeah, so I think your last guest was at Oz. That's right, yeah. Brilliant advice and was saying, you know, practice, practice, practice. And I would I would just like fully endorse that and be like, yeah, practice, 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 but practice healthily, you know. Yeah. Um when I do I do guest lectures at various universities and I ask people, you know, how when you're practicing, how long do you practice? You know, we had one one lady who said, Till it hurts. <laughs> no, that's not good. Um or like you know, people sort of say, oh, I just, you know, practice for two or three hours at a time. Do you have a break? Well, often not, you know. Um so the research says that um you know, there's various reasons why you want to have shorter practice sessions. You, you want to have a you want to have a session of about half an hour. You know, you, you can go a bit longer. You can go 45 minutes or so. But what what they're you know what you're looking for with really good quality practice is really effective concentration, staying concentrated through the whole whole practice session, and being clear at the beginning of what you want to achieve from that practice session. So you know, I think you mentioned one of those really difficult bars and you know in a, in a piece that that you know is coming up. You know, okay, so today for example, I want to work on that particular bar, and by the end of this session, I want to be able to X whatever it is. So they say it can be really effective to actually write that down in a little notebook and just say, this is what I want to do today. And then at the end of the session, you just say, did I do it? And um, they also recommend setting a timer. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've ever done the Pomodoro technique. It's, it's, it's you know, when you set like 25 minutes to to work on something exclusively. It's the same with music. Um, yeah, because once you get into the zone, you just get carried away, don't you? And time yeah, just disappears. That, that timer technique is so good for me, not just with practicing, but with anything that I'm doing. If I've got to get something done or I want to be productive, just saying, you know, I've got 30 minutes where I'm going to get this done, start a timer. And before you know it, quite often, 45 minutes, 50 minutes have gone past and, and you're on a roll. And yeah. uh, that if I do that early enough in the day, it tends to last all day and I, I have a yeah. much more productive experience. It's amazing, isn't it? When you actually yeah. see it really happening. So yeah, after that, after that time of just taking a break, you know, getting some fresh air, 10, 15 minutes, whatever. And you can, you know, as you say, you can go back and you can, you can actually repeat this all day. And um, it's quite amazing, isn't it? How, how much more you can get done. It's, um, and, and without getting absolutely exhausted, it's, yeah. I remember when I was writing my thesis, I just thought, I can't do this. I thought, yeah, you can commit to 25 minutes at a time. Let's just do it like that. And, you know, it was just however many chunks of 25 minutes. Um, but yeah, going back, going back to the practice sessions, um, 
It's also really important to keep practice sessions relatively short because you're going to actually avoid injury that way. Um, and, and it's really important to warm up and cool down um, at the beginning and the end of a, of a practice session. Um, and also there's a, there's a brilliant physio- musician's th- physiotherapist called uh, Dr. Sarah Upjohn. And, you know, she talks about actually doing stretches and things to warm up your joints, but also, you know, just run up the stairs and down again, actually to get your body prepared for practice. Um, mm. So, you know, actually cardiovascular, from a cardiovascular point of view. Um, and so at the end of a practice session, just reviewing what went well and what, what you did and, and, and what you want to do next time. And it can literally be that simple. Um, but the other thing is, I think sometimes we forget how far we've come or, you know, you things that are difficult at the time. You look back and you think, well, I can do that now, you know, and you forget that at some point that was something really difficult to you. And so actually having a track, like a log of your practice sessions and going back and sort of saying, well, actually, at that point, that was really hard. You know, it can really help your motivation. Um, mm. And also, like, if you found really great websites or really great tools online to help you with something, um, you know, jotting them down, because we all just forget, we're just bombarded with information all the time. So, um, yeah, highly recommend anyone to get like a practice diary. And there are apps as well um, that you can use on your phone to do this with timers integrated and things. So, yeah. Yeah, um, it makes such a difference to me again personally just tracking all of that stuff and actually seeing the results of it as well as being able to to plan effectively um i'm a big i, I use a the bullet journal method i don't know if you're yeah. familiar with that but i'm i'm really big on that and it um you know for everything in my life that just it helps me be way more effective and way more productive in in anything that i decide to do and actually being able to say i'm going to play the piano for 30 minutes I know that I'm going to get really concentrated really effective practice done and it's much better for me to do those short chunks than to you know six 30 minute sessions are going to be 10 times more productive for me than one three-hour session that's Mm. that's definitely my experience so that everything you've said there makes makes complete sense I think this is the thing. There's a lot of information that comes out of the performance science movement that, you know, you you can look at it and just think, oh, this is just common sense. Um, But sometimes we forget and, you know, sometimes and actually having methodical ways of doing things can can really help. Yeah. And we're not always taught how to practice. We're just told to practice as as young musicians. Um, You know, you might be a teacher might say to you, oh, you have to practice for an hour each day, but what does that mean? What's the structure mm-hmm. of that practice session? And um, yeah, so maybe there's a, maybe it's something that needs to feed into education as well. The same mm-hmm. ideas. Totally. I think all of these ideas need to feed into education. I mean, the physiotherapist I was just talking about, um, she's doing brilliant work at the Purcell School. So oh, yeah. she's really passionate about getting to student musicians, really young musicians, um, and trying to help them with posture and all kinds of things. Because I think the research suggests that a lot of musicians arrive at music college with issues already, you know, pretty pretty well bedded in. Um, so there's a lot of things that we need to get to younger children, as you say, in terms of prevention um, and, and those performance anxiety experiences, as we mentioned, and, and other issues. I'd love to just finish up with a, a couple of final questions for you um do you have a piece of advice for i would normally say musicians starting out but maybe with you musicians in general like a single piece of advice where they, where can they start to really look at their health and their well-being in their careers i think in the past 
a lot of the information has been quite prescriptive uh, in terms of you must do this and you must do that. Um, But it seems to be moving towards this idea of really getting to know yourself and what you need in order to be healthy and to thrive, because it's it's going to be different for all of us. And that extends to performance anxiety. So another thing that we didn't talk about is this idea of people needing different states to perform well. So it could be that some people need a very, very quiet, calm, reflective state. Some people need to be actually really energised and really kind of pumping, going, right, you know, I'm ready for performance. Um, So you can't give too prescriptive pieces of, of, of advice for, you know, those different performance settings. And it also applies to creativity. So what we need to be creative and to write music is different depending on who we are, you know, different environments, different processes. Um, but I think having self-awareness about about the things that you need um, is, is the best place to start. And also, you know, being really honest with yourself about if you, you know, do are you experiencing pain when you play? If you are, get help, re- you know, quickly get something treated don't don't worry about going to these organizations early on um they really really encourage people to seek help as soon as any issue kind of prevents itself um because obviously the chances of a good outcome are much higher so to summarize get to know yourself and what you need and if you have any issues seek help as quickly as possible and do you have any recommendations more generally? They don't even have to be related to your work, but something in your life that's really added added value to your experience, whether it's, you know, some a book, a film, documentary, anything at all? Oh, goodness. In terms of books, I've got so many books I could recommend. But I think if there was one thing that has really made a massive impact on my health, um, it's been meditation. And um, it's... I just, I, st- I still find it phenomenal what it's able to achieve. Um, and obviously it doesn't work for everybody and some people are quite uncomfortable doing it. Um, but I find it helps my health. It helps my creativity. Um, it allows me to access mental spaces that I, I just have this clarity of thought and everything just suddenly, I don't know, makes sense in terms of, in terms of work and creative projects. It's almost like it enables me to have a bit of a bird's eye view on everything and just see the bigger picture um but yeah from from a health point of view it's 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 fantastic to have a skill that in any environment that i'm in where i might be getting anxious or or having a difficult time i know how to calm my system quite quickly um and i think this is this is one of the things with meditation for performance anxiety for example or breathing techniques you know they really recommend that you you do it and you practice the habit regularly so when you're in that stressful place it's really embedded in your system already you know you can get there quicker um rather than trying it specifically before performance when your heart rate might be sky high and it's going to be quite hard to bring that down (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's that's really interesting because you're the third guest I've had who has recommended meditation. Um really? I, I I use it myself. Um I try to do, you know, a daily ten minute guided meditation using uh, one of the apps and the difference that it's made to my life is is really amazing, especially when it comes to just mental clarity and awareness, um, whether that's work wise or just in personal relationships. I think it's it's mm-hmm. so important and something for you know, if you've not tried it and you think it's a bit hippie or or whatever your thoughts are on it, give it a go. It's it's so, so valuable. 
Um, you've also you've mentioned your book, which is called Sound Advice, co-written with Rianne Jones, and that's is it the twenty sixth of February that's released? Yes, which is yes, in a couple of days. Week. Yeah, um, in fact, it's probably available now by the time this goes out. Uh, and also your podcast, which is Elevate Music, which um, I've listened to a number of episodes of, and really really enjoyed it some really insightful conversations and and lots of really great advice um in there as well so i'd encourage people to to go and check that out after they've listened to this episode um where can people find you online if they want to find out a little bit more about your your work um so i've got a website which is lucyhayman.com um and i am on twitter and instagram uh yeah lucinda Heyman on twitter i think lucy Heyman music on instagram um but i think yeah twitter is definitely my my preferred platform so come and say hi on twitter introduce yourself um yeah i I love hearing about the different experiences people have and you know and and what things they need help with and things so um yeah come and introduce yourself Fantastic. I'll uh, stick some links in the episode description to all of those things, to the podcast, to the book and to your website and social media. Um, And thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. It's been so insightful um, and so many practical steps have come from it that um, people can definitely start to to look at and, and, you know, implement into their, their own careers and into their own lives. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening and for getting to the end of the conversation. I really hope that you enjoyed it. I also really want to say thank you to those of you who have been actively supporting the podcast since we launched. Those of you who are following us on social media and have very kindly chosen to share these episodes with friends or family or anyone else who might find them insightful. There's plenty more to come, so please make sure that you subscribe and if you would be so kind as to leave a very quick rating or review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform which allows you to do so, it's really, really helpful. I'll be back next week with another brand new episode and a new guest. Until then, have a great week. (laughs) 